I would say that I've always had a very respectful relationship with everyone in the family. I've had a very frank and factual conversations about all of these types of things for many, many years. There's no, nothing has changed. Our views two days ago were exactly the same as they were when I first started to learn about climate change 14 years ago. So there's, there's always a difference between what gets seen out in the public and what actually is happening in a family or, or behind the scenes. And I would say there's a diversity of opinion on all of those things within the family, as there are in many families. Um, there's no line that everyone has to adhere to or, or cross or anything like that. There are, there are lots of conversations that can be had, and they are had. From Politico, this is Women Rule, where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. That's Catherine Murdoch, the philanthropist and co-founder of the Quadrivium Foundation, where she works to combat climate change and reform American politics. And those political disagreements she was talking about? Well, those aren't just arguments about climate change with relatives who watch Fox News. They're with family members who own Fox News and sit atop a global media empire. Catherine Murdoch's politics are a bit different than you may expect. But mostly she's kept quiet about it until now. I would say I'm still learning how to navigate that right now. We reacted by being very private the whole time. And, and, and certainly I took a step back and have not been public at all, really, throughout our whole time um, until now. This is the first time where, where I've really decided that I have a voice and I need to try to use it. So why speak out now? Catherine sees a make-or-break moment for both American democracy and global climate change, two causes she's devoting herself and investing $100 million of her money to try and fix. That includes promoting ranked choice voting, supporting anti-gerrymandering proposals, and even backing reform-minded candidates. And if you think of Fox News and assume the Murdochs will support President Trump in 2020, what Catherine has to say might surprise you. I think there are so many great candidates, um, and we're we're really excited to to back whoever the nominee is, no matter what. And now, here's my conversation with Catherine Murdoch. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. Since the November elections, you've been pretty public with your plans to invest a lot of money to reform politics in America. Things like open primaries, independent redistricting, and rank choice voting. Why now? So I think that right now is a is a, is a moment in time where we're going to make it or break it on a number of different issues, and I think that's true for our democracy, and I think that's true for our climate. The decisions we make in the next few years are going to have impact on coming generations. Our foundation's called Quadrivium, and that's Latin for crossroads. I think we are at a major crossroads right now, and. I feel very strongly that I need to know that I've done everything that I can possibly do at this moment in time. Like many Americans, I've been concerned about the way that our politics have been going for a while, but the last couple of years have really shown a spotlight on the dysfunction in Washington. We're told that there's a huge amount of polarization in our country, and Certainly it feels that way. Um, if you read the news, if you, if you're on, on Twitter, there's definitely a, a polarization on, on many different topics. But if you actually look at the polling, there's a huge amount of consensus around even the most contentious issues. So 
polls on reasonable gun reform. There's anywhere from 90 to 94 percent agreement on that. Even things like immigration, which are hot button issues, 80 percent of Americans believe that we should have a, a path to citizenship for the dreamers. So there's there's all these contentious issues and a lot more consensus than we think, but we're not getting the results out of the politics. And the question is, why? Why are we not getting there? So we look at the root cause and say, okay, it's partly because the politicians are no longer representing the people. They're representing generally the extremes of their party and special interests that put money there. You know, none of these, none of the things that you mentioned, ranked choice voting, open primaries, vote by home, none of these things are silver bullets. It's not going to, oh, we change that and then it's going to change everything. But if you add them all together, it adds up to something that's much more representative so that the people's will is actually shown in the legislation. $100 million. It's a lot of money. Uh, <laughs> and obviously, there is uh, no shortage of things you could be spending uh, it on. But talk about why politics, why these specific proposals. Is there one that you think in the short term? I mean, these are kind of long term changes that you're talking about, really structurally changing the way that the system is governed and the people are elected that uh, go to Congress. Is there a short term kind of win that you're hoping for in the next couple of years? Well, we did get some short-term wins, actually, mm-hmm. in the in the midterms. Uh, we had a number of anti-gerrymandering reforms that passed. We, we just recently passed ranked choice voting for New York City, so we're really excited about that. And that will have really big impact. You know, that triples the number of, of people under the ranked choice voting system. So even though it was a city, it was, it's a big city. <laughs> <laughs> Do you invest in candidates as well beyond kind of these more structural proposals? Yes. And we're, we're really looking for reform candidates, candidates that are interested in the same type of thing we are and, and candidates that are interested in, in working across the aisle to get stuff done. Is there any presidential candidate that you think is kind of the reform candidate you're looking for on some of these issues? Well, I, I've actually been thrilled to see how many candidates have mentioned reform in their platforms. Certainly, Pete Buttigieg has done that. Amy Klobuchar has done that. Uh, Mike Bloomberg has done that. I'm sure so, several of the others have as well. But I, those are the ones that I've that I've seen that have specifically said we think that this is job one. When there was a debate where they asked all of the candidates, you know, what's the one thing that you would do? And I thought that was a it was actually a very good question because there is limited political capital that you have sure. to spend. So what's the one thing you're going to focus on. And Buttigieg said, you know, he would do political reform because then he could get everything else done. And I stood up and whooped at that answer. (laughs) Do you plan on supporting or backing one of the candidates? I think there are so many great candidates um, and we're we're really excited to to back whoever the nominee is, no matter what. Do you think the there is a double-edged sort of having the Murdoch last name that, you know, you kind of have this platform, but at the same time, no matter what you do on these issues, it's always going to be in comparison to Rupert Murdoch? There is. But I'm also very aware that I'm in charge of me, what I do. I'm in charge of our foundation. Um, I'm in charge of the work that we choose to support. And that is what I can control, and that's what I'm going to wield to the best of my abilities. Uh, I'm curious. When did you personally start getting interested in politics? Mm -hmm. What kind of piqued your interest? 
It was the root cause issue, mm-hmm. really. No matter what big issue you are working on, if you're working on education, you're dealing with the government. If you're working on immigration, you're dealing with the government. If you're working on climate change, you're dealing with the government. And if the government isn't functioning properly, you just you can't get those things done. You can't be as effective at helping people as you want to be. And, you know, I'm not alone in finding that. There's a number of, of other people that are saying, if we want to actually achieve our missions... Mm-hmm. We can't do it in this current environment. So we're going to have to get involved. And it's difficult because, you know, if you come from a foundation mentality, politics is not all C3 dollars, right? right? So, so politics involves getting personal about that. And that's uncomfortable for people, particularly for a lot of business people. It's hard to get involved in politics. You're worried you're going to get attacked. You're worried you're going to get associated with someone. You're worried you're going to lose. People don't like losing. <laughs> so, <laughs> no one. I think universally, no one likes losing. And and so I guess what what we're trying to do is offer up a, a a different vision to say this isn't about getting involved in politics for your own personal benefit or your company's benefit. This is really about getting involved in politics on behalf of the country to say, you know, what to put country over party, to put country over self. And, and, and that's, I, I don't know that that's been expressed in that way. So you mentioned your foundation doesn't just focus on politics. One of your other big causes uh, is climate change. I should note climate change is an issue you yourself have been working on for many years. I understand that your involvement started after you heard a speech by Al Gore. <laughs> yes. Take us inside that room. What did he say? What was it that jolted you into action? Yes, well, I'm I'm sad to say that I'm somebody who does respond to a PowerPoint. <laughs> um, and that's you know that's what he had. It was it was compelling data and it was putting together things that I had sort of seen bits and pieces of but but hadn't all put it into one one place before. And I decided after watching that that I wanted to change everything I was doing. I was running a, a business. I wanted to figure out how to make that business sustainable. My, my background's communications. I wanted to focus that on uh, science communications and, and and try to help in that fight as much as I could. Um, and I really changed. I, I changed my whole life around it. Unfortunately, he was a good messenger for me, but but not for others. <laughs> you know, and and that was sort of the beginning of the polarization of and the politicization of climate change. And I, I you know, it's it's a it's a bittersweet thing because he he opened a lot of eyes and he closed a lot of minds. You've said that there quote, hasn't been a Republican answer on climate change. Why do you think that is? I think that there's been. Um, hoping that you know there's that there's there's certainly a band of uncertainty in science and I think that there's been a, a sort of hopefulness about maybe they're wrong mm-hmm. I think that the environmental community has been really terrible about telling our success stories and so um, for example really similar situations that we've actually won the whole in the ozone layer and acid rain that are two big global environmental problems that were actually solved. But if you ask most people about acid rain, they say, oh, yeah, I remember that in the 80s or 90s. I remember people like, talking like about that. school, that yeah, was like a big I remember topic. About it. Yeah. it went away. It must not have been true. It was the environmentalists making up uh, a story and it wasn't true. And the same, you know, the same to a certain extent with the, the hole in the ozone. Oh, yeah, 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 the hole in the ozone, you know, it went away. No, we solved it. And to me, those are really great examples of 
we can do it. Co- climate change is more complex than either of those issues, and it's been more politically sort of stultified. But that doesn't mean we can't do exactly the same type of thing that we've already done. We we solved the whole whole ozone layer. It's closed up. I mean, it's it's pretty incredible, actually. But those stories are not out. Most people don't know that. Well, let's take a step back. You are part of one of the most famous families in America, maybe the world, but you weren't born into it. Hmm. Tell us about your life before becoming Catherine Murdoch. You grew up in Oregon, right? Yes. <laughs> so long ago, I can barely remember. <laughs> <laughs> what, what did your parents do? Well, when I was very young, my parents had a, had a health food store. My mother then worked at Hewlett Packard. I uh, was a single working mother and... We didn't have a lot of money. Um, it was a bit of a very nice, you know, Oregon upbringing. And I'm sure being in Oregon impacted my views on the environment. Such an outdoorsy place. I was yeah. just there recently. Yeah. But I think I, I didn't really start getting active in environmental causes until moving to Hong Kong, where I just really saw the effects of pollution on the environment there. And I started to, to sort of dip my toes in the water of saying, okay, <laughs> the very polluted water mm-hmm. of Hong Kong to sort of, you know, how, what can I do to, to, to work on these things and how can I be a part of this? And so I kept exploring and looking and it wasn't really until I found, I mean, b- both the Clinton Climate Initiative and Environmental Defense Fund were attractive to me as environmental organizations because they were very market oriented, very focused on how do you change incentives? How do you change the system from within? And that spoke to me as a, as a business person, the sort of the way I think it, more so than the traditional environmental sort of tree huggery right. type of thing. <laughs> but, so you go, you're in Oregon. How do you end up in New York, which then kind of leads to the Hong Kong, you know, what, what drew you to New York? I mean, at the the truth is James. <laughs> <laughs> you met him in 1997. <laughs> um, I, I went through a big charade about, well, do I go to San Francisco? Do I go to New York? And uh, funnily enough, I ended up <laughs> in, in New York, York. <laughs> where he was. As we often do. Um, <laughs> so talk a little bit about that. I mean, was it a difficult adjustment from being kind of a private citizen growing up in Oregon to being a family that's dogged by paparazzi, fodder for gossip columns. How did you deal with that adjustment? I think a lot of our listeners go from being pretty private people and then take on leadership roles where they have to be in front of cameras or they have to act a certain way or they're expected to act a certain way. How did you kind of navigate that? Well, I, I would say I'm still learning how to navigate that right now. We reacted by being very private the whole time. And, and, and certainly I took a step back and have not been public at all, really, throughout our whole time um, until now. Mm-hmm. So this is this is the first time where where I've really decided that I have a voice and I need to try to use it. So there have been obviously a number of articles over the years describing your political views in context of Fox News and and, and your in laws. How how would you characterize? I want to give you the platform to characterize your own political perspective. I have used the term radical centrist as a way to sort of differentiate from either, uh, uh, the, you know, 
I think sometimes when you say you're a moderate or you're a centrist, there's a, an assumption that that means it's, it's a little bit mushy. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's necessarily has to be the case. I feel very strongly that we can have big change, but also look at all sides of a problem and think, where does the data lead us? Where, where are the best solutions? Let's put ideology aside and really try to find big changes that can make a difference. And that's, that's the best the best way of expressing it, but I, I don't know that there's a there's a perfect word. It's not a neat little box that it's you not fit a box. into. I've always <laughs> I've always hated being boxed. <laughs> there you go. Well, I want to ask you though. Recently, you spoke out through a spokeswoman about Australia and what's happening there, and kind of the difference of opinions was put on display with what Fox News has done around climate denialism. How do you manage that when you have differences? We often, all of us, have differences with our family, right? But you're doing this kind of in the public realm. How would you describe your differences with them? How do you manage them? I would say that I've always had a very respectful relationship with everyone in the family. I've I've had a very frank and factual conversations about all of these types of things for many, many years. There's no, nothing has changed. Our views two days ago were exactly the same as they were when I first started to learn about climate change 14 years ago. So there's there's always a difference between what gets seen out in the public or what's on the surface and, and what actually is happening in a family or, or behind the scenes. And I would say there's a diversity of opinion on all of those things within the family, as there are in many families. There's no line that everyone has to adhere to or or cross or anything like that. There are, there are lots of conversations that can be had, and they are had. Do you expect any of the other Murdochs to join in your efforts here on kind of what you're doing in politics? I think that there there will be I don't know if there will be um uh, joining on politics in the sense of James's sisters are are overseas and therefore not involved in American politics but like I said there's a there's a wide diversity of of opinion and agreement on many things so whether whether what's public and what's what what's what's actual is 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 often different you mentioned kind of this concept of business people just in general, not wanting to get involved in politics or wanting to kind of stay out for a lot of different reasons. You are now going and talking to a lot of those people. What's your pitch to them and what do you think has resonated with them? I think there's a, a huge amount of anxiety out there right now and, a, and an understanding that things aren't working the way they need to be working. And even for supporters of the current administration, they acknowledge that the situation is causing a lot of tension, to your point, between families, between friends, um, between business partners. It, 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 the, the current situation is is difficult. Um, and so I think there is a desire to change. And that's the silver line. There's a desire to say, what can we do about the current situation? Whether that's if your concern is polarization or if your concern is representation, people want to do something. Mm-hmm. We put together the United America Fund specifically because so many people said to me, that's amazing what you're doing. Tell me what to do. And so we we put together this fund and said, okay, look, here's all our research. Here's what Here are the answers um, that we think seem both non or bipartisan and are both possible and powerful. And we don't have all the answers. And as I said before, it's not a silver bullet, but we think that 
putting money into this is a way of moving forward and, you know, making the environment such that better politics can happen. A lot of the changes you ultimately want to have are at the federal level in terms of kind of big legislative reforms on things like climate that would be gun reform, but you are taking the tact of going to the states first. Explain what the strategy is. Well, I think that um, there's a couple of things. One is most reforms happen at the state level first. And if you look at any major change in history, whether it's marriage equality or uh, women's voting or whatever, it happened state by state, and then it reached a tipping point, and then it happened at, at the federal level. The states have quite a lot of power. Um, and they're also laboratories. They're laboratories for ideas. They're laboratories for people. So there's a lot of different reasons why we focus there first. Any states in particular that you feel are ripe for your issues that you're trying to take on that you think we should be watching for in the next you know, two to four years? We've actually done a um, sort of state of democracy map where we look at what's the status of each reform in, in each of the states. I would put Colorado at the top of those reforms. They have everything that we think is powerful except for ranked choice voting. And I think you are seeing changes in the way that the state is run. And certainly you've seen climate legislation coming out of Colorado. Um, but I think we need to do more work, actually, to to say as these changes go through, can we make a direct line between that and more functional government? In Virginia, we have a proof point, actually, where we've elected, or helped to elect, rather. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> we've helped to elect both Republicans and, and, and Democrats that were reform-minded, to, and they have joined, they've created now something called the Commonwealth Caucus. And that is specifically designed to work across the aisle to get legislation done and specifically on, on reform, but also on other issues. And so that will be a mm -hmm. proof point of when we get people who say, we're willing to work across the aisle and we want these reforms, can we then get bigger legislation achievements out of that? And I, I think and I hope the answer is yes. We came off of a historic midterm election where there were more women elected than ever before. Oftentimes, you hear people like Speaker Pelosi and, and Republican women leaders say if there are more women, more things get done, the tone changes, there's more civility, they aren't kind of just you know having the same kind of testosterone in the room. Is that something that you agree with? Are you supportive of trying to get more women into positions of power in, in government? Absolutely. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, <stop. laughs> well, on that note, uh, last question. Do you have any interest in running for office yourself? <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? I think that... Uh, I think it's difficult. It's difficult for someone in the position that I'm in to be able to go out and uh, expect people to relate to, to to what my ideas are. I suppose. Um, oh, now I'm going to stumble through this one. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> I think, and maybe this is maybe this is something that we should try to work on because I what I what I do think is that we expect a lot of women. We expect a perfection level out of women that is basically impossible to meet. We need to look good and be kick ass, but not too kick ass, and you don't be shrill and smart, but not too smart. Uh, you know, make sure you cook, but. Take care of the kids. Don't, okay. don't you know? There's there's sort of all these incredible uh, conflicting things. My hats off to to the women that are running right now. They're doing an amazing job of of actually 
being able to do all those things. But the the skill sets that are needed to win elections are are often separate from the skill sets that are needed to govern. And that's something that I think is a fundamental issue that we that we need to to figure out. And that one, I, that one I don't have an answer for. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Women Rule is produced by Zach Stanton. Irene Noguchi is the executive producer of Political Audio. Special thanks to Bob Ald for his help reporting in New York. The show is made in partnership with our founding partners, Google and the Tory Burch Foundation. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. And please share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at DC. You can also join the Women Rule community by texting WOMEN to 66866.